those of you that don't know me, uh, I've been a lawyer for about 40 years, not quite. My law partner sitting over there, he's been a lawyer longer than me, and we're both trying to retire. Uh, he's doing a better job of it than I am right now. Um, but uh, the passage that we're going to look at is just a continuation of what uh, Pastor Brad's been teaching in 1 Corinthians. I'm not a professional preacher, and so what I'm, what I'm going to pray, I've been praying, is that if something I say this morning, and, and you know, a lot of you aren't thinking about filing a lawsuit, that's what it's going to be basically about, but if I have three main points, A, B, and C, my prayer is that maybe you have a C-sized hole in your heart, or a B-sized hole in your heart, or an A-sized hole in your heart that something I say might touch. That's the prayer. Um, for the rest of you, uh, this is going to be an exercise in, uh, I'm never going to file a lawsuit against anybody, so it's no big deal to me. Um, but it's, it's all about attitude. It's all about heart. In our prayer time this morning, Claire Fredstrom prayed, it's a wonderful thing to put ourselves in the hands of a mighty God. That's what it's about. Um, I don't know if you've ever filed a lawsuit. I'm not going to criticize you if you have. But a lot of people uh, shop around for a lawyer. Can you believe that? Uh, they come and they tell you their situation and you might tell them some of the weaknesses of what they're there for. But if you uh, don't believe you want to take that case, a lot of people will go find another lawyer and tell them the story, and another lawyer and tell them the story. And I'm telling you, ultimately, they're going to find a lawyer who will be happy to take their money, who will be happy to tell them they have a great case. And for many of them, a few months later, they've spent a lot of money, and they're not real happy with what they're finding in the way of the progress of the case. They're not finding the satisfaction that retribution they thought would, would bring to them. Uh, and, and they would probably, lots of them, had been better off to take the advice of someone being honest with them rather than, you know, for $5,000 you have a wonderful case. That's a, a, a stereotype of some lawyers, but... Um, you have a wonderful case uh, was a tactic that Absalom used when he was trying to uh, take David's place. You know, when King David was on the throne, he had a son named Absalom who really wanted to replace his father. And I'm going to read from 2 Samuel 15. Absalom used to rise early in the morning and stand beside the way of the city gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would say, hey, come over here, come over here. Hey, where are you from? And they would tell him they're from what city here or there. And Absalom would say, you know what? You've got a great case. But there's no man designated by the king to hear you. And so he would say, oh, if I were the judge of the land, then every man with a dispute would come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came to pay homage, he would put his hand out and take hold of him and kiss him. And thus Absalom did to all of Israel 
who came to the king for judgment, and he stole the hearts of men. You know, if, you, if you've been told by someone you have a good case and the, the judge doesn't agree, in this case, King David, they would go, well, Absalom said I had a good case. I sure hope Absalom becomes king someday. But if he, if he uh, did win, then he'd say, well, Absalom was right. He's a smart guy. He decided I would win, and I, and I did. Everybody wants to be told that they have a good case, don't we? When I'm mad at my wife or I'm mad at my neighbor, I feel I'm justified in being angry. And, uh, and I want people to tell me. You ever get on social media and see that? People have opinions, and, and no matter how ridiculous the opinion is, they get flocked by friends who, oh, you, you, you're absolutely right. What you have there is the best. You have the grievance of all grievances, regardless of how ridiculous. I asked uh, Pastor Troy to read 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, because it's uh, Paul's advice to Timothy and Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, is going to take his own advice. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. And we'll talk about it here in a minute, but Jesus will judge the living and the dead. We know at his second coming, and the saints will join with him in that process. And Paul's going to tell that to the Corinthians. Be ready to preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is Paul's, uh, the way Paul is also approaching the Corinthians. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. I want my way. I don't really care what God's word says. They won't endure sound teaching, but like the Corinthians, they'll have itchy ears. And I'm looking for someone to scratch that itch. Oh, he says I have a good case. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And now we're seeing it in the church today. People forgetting what the Bible says and trying to mimic what the, uh, the culture says. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. This body of believers needs to be sober-minded about what God's Word teaches. We need to endure the suffering that comes, the criticism that comes from holding fast to God's Word. Do the work of an evangelist. Focus on what's important, the Gospel. Fulfill your ministry. Well, Paul takes his own advice in 1 Corinthians 6, and uh, he writes a scathing rep reproof, rebuke, and exhortation, just like 2 Timothy, to the Corinthians about their disgusting habit of filing public lawsuits against other Christians. Let's read through the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 6. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And as I said, Scripture tells us that in the millennium, the saints will join with Jesus in judging the unrighteous. 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? Uh, A lot of angels who uh, abandoned God will be judged by us and Jesus as well in eternity. How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Anybody familiar with the court system here in Nebraska? How it's all set up? Anybody ever gone? Don't raise your hand. Anybody ever gone to small claims court? (laughs) (laughs) Small claims court has a jurisdictional amount of $3,900. So if you've got a dispute with somebody that's $3,900 or less, you can go to small claims court. A judge hears both parties. There's no lawyers involved. There's very little in the way of courtroom rules. You know, it's kind of a free-for-all. And uh, you might get a judgment against uh, a person in small claims court. If it's, if it's something that's more than $3,900, we have county court. County court allows judges. It has strict uh, court procedure rules. The jurisdictional limit for county court is $57,000. I don't know how they came up with $57,000. It goes up a little bit every few years. Uh, It also hears uh, criminal cases where the maximum penalty would be one year in jail or less. Those are misdemeanors. And then uh, for larger cases and more money involved, district court is available. Uh, Any amount can be sued for in district court. They also handle criminal cases which are felonies, which would be over one year in jail as a potential penalty, as well as monetary fines and so forth. That's a very regimented court system, very procedurally uh, well-regulated and so forth. Um, Corinth, if you didn't know, was not, is not in the United States. <laughs> it's not even in Israel. Corinth was a popular and prosperous city in ancient Greece. Uh, The Greeks had a reputation for for being very argumentative and very litigious. Is that a word, litigious? There was a saying about the Greeks at that time, every Greek is a lawyer. So uh, we're talking about a whole different situation that Paul is speaking into. If you wanted to go to court in uh, Greece at that time, in Corinth in particular, the first step that you would have to do is to go before a tribunal of three judges, three arbiters. Uh, because of their rules, they all had to be 60 years of age. Uh, you couldn't be in that three-person uh, panel unless you were 60. And once you got to 61, you had to step off and somebody else who turned 60 could be on it. They would hear your case. No lawyers. There's no lawyers anywhere in this process except in preparation. But uh, they would hear your case. And they would decide who would win. Uh, But their decision wasn't binding. And so if the parties didn't like the decision, or if one party wouldn't live by that decision, 
they could go to trial. Trials were something else in uh, Corinth. Um, all trials were jury trials. There was no judge. There was a, a, a kind of a magistrate who kept things moving along, but he wasn't uh, ruling on anything. He was just trying to keep things moving. Most trials were no more than a day or less. They were all jury trials, and they were all held out in the marketplace. There wasn't a tidy little courtroom. The marketplace, uh, a wide open place for the public, uh, was where they held these trials. And uh, I think we have like 12 jurors, typically, in a jury trial. The typical jury in uh, Corinth would have been about 40 people to 400 people. They have... Uh, some records where there were as many as 5,000 jurors. They didn't select the jury. You just said, I, would, I want to be on the jury. Okay, go sit over there. And this whole room might be the jury. And they would hear the case. No lawyers. The person that was bringing the case would uh, lay out his case, have witnesses. You couldn't cross-examine the witnesses. So regardless of what a witness said, no matter how outlandish it might have been, it got said. And oh, by the way, there might be two or 3,000 people in the audience watching this whole thing. It's all in the open. Um, it was entertainment in, in Corinth to go watch trials. And I would imagine there was probably some booing and some, some cheering, depending on who you were for and, and that sort of thing. It was quite a circus. And, uh, well... I would say don't laugh because about 8 million people a day watch Judge Judy. So uh, we like entertainment as well as the next uh, society, I guess. As soon as the case was done, they, were, they had a, a jug of water that had a hole in the bottom of it, and they could stop it or open it. And as soon as all the water dripped out, we're done. And when they were done, the jury voted immediately. There was no deliberating. The jury, each jury member had two discs, and they would place a disc in a big pot, depending on who they thought won. And they counted the discs, and whoever got a simple majority, that was the winner. So this was kind of a free-for-all. And you can imagine why Paul was disgusted with the Christians in Corinth for submitting themselves to that kind of a system. In uh, verses 1, 4, and 6, uh, Paul gives us this commentary. Don't take your disputes between yourselves to the public courts. Pretty simple. How strong did he believe in that? In verse 1 he says, How dare you take your disputes to the public courts? In verse 5 he says, I say this to your shame. In verse 6 he says, Brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Paul was not pleased with the conduct of the Christian church in Corinth. Obviously, they had not set themselves apart. However many people were doing this had not set themselves apart from the unrighteous out of which they came. What do we know about a trial generally? I'm going to badmouth you because that suits my case. I'm going to portray you, the opponent, as dishonest. I'm going to portray you as untrustworthy. Don't listen to that guy. 
He's a crook. He's trying to cheat me out of what I deserve. Don't we like it when brothers say that about other brothers in front of all this unrighteous public? Isn't that exciting? The aftermath of such trials would be that the relationship between the two brothers and their families would be destroyed. And the general public would take some perverse joy in seeing two Christians arguing with each other in the public. As a result, their hypocrisy would greatly hinder the work of the gospel. That's the bottom line. And they're not giving any credit to the Lord to work out these things. He was horrified that they could blatantly treat each other that way. Let me tell you about a man here in Lincoln who had a different attitude about his Christian testimony. When I was a law student, I went to observe a jury trial here in Lincoln. And the first thing that they do in a jury trial is to impanel a group of people. My wife was told she might be on jury duty just this last month. Ultimately didn't have to serve. But they bring in a panel of people out of which they're going to select 12 and a few alternates. And the attorneys question the potential jurors. Anybody served jury duty before? A few of you? Yeah, great. I hope you had a better experience than some I've had. So this one gentleman was on the jury panel, and the defense attorney started asking him questions, and he says, what do you do for a living? He said, I own a business. We have about 500 employees, and we have done work all over the Midwest, and in fact, this particular company put the roof on the Pinnacle Bank Arena. They put the roof on uh, Nebraska Crossings out by Gretna, so they're not a small company, and uh, he said, I have about 500 employees, and uh, I've owned this company since 1969. He said, well, then you're, you're well familiar with lawsuits, and this gentleman said, I've never been sued. You've never been sued? You have a company of 500 employees and you've never been sued? And his response was, if I have a customer who's not happy, I continue to work with them until they're happy. It's a pretty basic principle. And the lawyer was like, I can't believe this. Well, he was selected for the jury, and he, in fact, was appointed by the, his fellow jurors as the jury foreman, so he spoke for the jury when the verdict was rendered in that case. That's a person who's living his Christian principles at the workplace, day after day, year after year. Are we that kind of people? The Corinthians were not. Some of you remember, you know, Paul's talking about uh, if you take your brother to court, you've lost already before the trial even starts. He says that. You're, you've lost already. You've disqualified yourself. You're self-condemned. Did anybody uh, catch the words of the football referee last week when uh, Nebraska played Indiana and one of our players was disqualified uh, for throwing a punch? What did the referee say? He said, by his actions, he has disqualified himself from continued participation in the game. He was self-condemned by his actions, according to the referee's announcement.
Paul said it's already a defeat for you as Christians to have lawsuits against one another. Why not suffer wrong instead? Why not be defrauded? You've lost before you even get to the jury. He's so concerned about the reputation of Christ and the Christian testimony of Christ's followers to the rest of the Corinthian community that he forcefully suggests that by going to court, you're defrauding your brother. And he says, I may even need to, I mean, he's implying, I might even need to question whether you're a real believer or not. And so he warns about what unrighteous people look like. Are you one of these unrighteous, he's kind of implying? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. Don't go back to that. All right, so uh, I don't have to go too much further to convince you that Paul's trying to tell the believers in Corinth not to sue, uh, sue each other. But you might say, well, what about my rights? I have rights, and we do have rights, legal rights. What, what options are there if I don't sue when I feel like I have a right to sue? What options do I have? Well, one of the options that you have is to simply relinquish those rights Overlook the offense and take no action at all. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Paul suggests, why, ra why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Let me tell you the story of Ted. Ted worked for a government agency. His boss was Joan. And Ted was a new believer. He had been a believer for about a year, and occasionally at his workplace he was sharing his faith with other people, not really feeling like he was seeing any results, and he shared his faith with Joan, his supervisor. She wasn't very happy with him. She just didn't really like Ted too much. At some point she decided to uh, give Ted a task that he, she knew would be unpleasant. He had to move a bunch of heavy boxes to another place within the department. And in the process of doing that, Ted hurt his back. He missed a couple of months of work because of his injury, and ultimately he sued Joan and the uh, department. In the process of the litigation, uh, Ted was finally offered a settlement of $5,000. This was before trial. Uh, you know, just here's $5,000 if you'll just go away. And uh, Ted was being advised by his lawyer to take the $5,000. Ted, at the same time, just kind of struggling, went to a biblical counselor in his church, and he talked about his situation. He talked about how he was feeling. And the counselor helped Ted realize that he had done a few things that kind of added to this 
conflict with his supervisor. And uh, so he was, you know, more realistic in evaluating the whole situation. Uh, again, uh, his lawyer said, I think you should take the $5,000 and, and be done with this. But Ted prayed about this for quite some time, and he came to the conclusion that the Lord was telling him to not just drop the lawsuit, but to not even take the $5,000. Give up the $5,000. That seems countercultural, doesn't it? Don't you take the money and run? So Ted uh, announced to his supervisor that he was dropping the lawsuit and not even taking the $5,000. He admitted to his own guilt in the causing of their rift between the two of them, and he apologized and asked for Joan's forgiveness. He said, I hope we can start off on a new foot. Well, Joan really didn't trust Ted. Not only didn't like him, but she didn't trust him, and so she didn't even respond to his apology and asking for forgiveness. And, of course, he went away from that meeting a little bit disappointed, but anyway, he went back to work. He did not take the money. He dropped the lawsuit, and all of his coworkers were like, what were you thinking? And his union rep, the, the workers belonged to a union, and the union rep even came and he says, is this true? Did I hear that you took the, didn't even take the money? And he said, that's right. And as the union rep walked away from that little meeting, he heard him mutter, the union rep was muttering to himself, that's the first time a Christian's faith ever cost him anything. So for uh, a while, Ted uh, just carried on with his job. And someone came to him not too much longer after that and said, would you sit down with me once a week and could we study the Bible at lunchtime? He said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. And other situations came up through the next few years. And after three years, the biblical counselor and Ted were uh, sitting down talking. And Ted told him, that several people in his department had accepted Christ as their Savior. He said, that was the best $5,000 I ever spent. Give up your rights. Why not give up your rights? Why would we do that? What, what would be the reason to do that? Claire Fredstrom hit it right on the head this morning. We put ourselves in the hands of an almighty God. What, he, what can he do if I leave it in his hands? He can do anything. So we're trusting in an almighty God. Well, if you can't walk away, and I've had people come and ask me about that, knowing what 1 Corinthians 6 says, and I, I try to counsel them that if you can do this without bitterness... Let's walk away from this and let it go and let God do what God's going to do. Or, you know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And some people can do that. Some people can say, well, I, I've prayed and I can, I can walk away from this and I don't have bitterness about it, then that's a good thing to do. But what if you can't? What if, you're, what if you just can't let it go? Well, there are other options. There are other options for us. The first of those options would be Christian mediation. We have someone from the church or the staff sit down with the parties if they'll agree to do it, and we go over the situation and we listen to each other. And we start to see as I, you know, so many times as I start to tell my story, I start to see some of the 
weaknesses of my story. I don't see it until I actually have to speak it out loud. And by sitting down with a mediator, now a mediator doesn't decide anything. The mediator's sole job is to try and help each other, each of the parties, see each other's situation, find some, if possible, some compromises that they might make and that they might make, and come to some sort of voluntary agreement that this is how we're going to settle this and we're going to be done with it. That's what Christian mediation would be. There's, there's secular mediation, but Christian mediation is based on the Christian principles that we live by. And there are uh, uh, pastors and elders that would be glad to sit down with someone who's in a situation like that where they need a third party to help us walk through this dispute, walk through this uh, uncomfortable situation so that we might be restored to fellowship. There are also some professional ministries that do the same thing. Uh, Ken Sandy, S-A-N-D-E, founded a Christian ministry called Peacemakers. And that's been in uh, operation for a number of years. And Peacemakers goes all over the country uh, helping people with Christian mediation to um, sit down and do what, exactly what I said. A, a pastor might not feel confident that he could do that. And so they might want to turn to peacemakers as a, a ministry. There's peacemakers, counselors all over the country. They've been trained. Uh, there is a fee involved, but it's way less expensive than going to trial and all the expenses involved there. Uh, so that's Christian mediation. So if, if the uh, mediator cannot get them to come to some sort of agreement, and that happens sometimes, there's another option that they can take, which is arbitration. Christian arbitration is where a person is appointed by the parties. Uh, I want to say it's much like a judge. They really are going to make a decision about the case. Arbitration is different from mediation. That person is going to hear both parties, ask questions, clarify the situation, and then the arbitration person is going to decide who's going to win. It might be 75% here and 25% there, but... That's going to be something that the arbitration person, the arbitrator, decides for the parties. Again, with Christian arbitration, it's going to be based on biblical principles. Um, they're not necessarily trained in the law. All of these uh, mediators and arbitrators aren't necessarily trained in the law. Um, but they are trained in biblical relationship building. What if arbitration and, and the person might say well I don't I'm not going to go along with the arbitration arbitrator's decision what is another alternative I think the ultimate biblical alternative is found in Matthew 18 here's Matthew 18 15 through 20 and we've read this last week I read it last week before pastor Brad's message if your brother sins against you Go and tell him his fault, just between you and him alone. Isn't that good advice? Just go try and settle this between you and your brother. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. We have restored fellowship. It probably involves an apology. It might even involve some monetary compensation to make things right. Um, but if he does not listen, these are the words of Jesus. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Keeping it as private as we possibly can. This is between brothers in Christ. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, I, I've seen this in operation. Uh, I feel that you can tell it to the church by going to the elders. You don't have to have somebody stand up here and, and tell your problem to the whole church. Tell it to the elders. Tell it to a pastor. And let the pastor take it to the elders. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Not any longer in the fellowship, but what else? What's our, what's our duty to the Lord about unbelievers, Gentiles, those that aren't a member of the fellowship? Our, our duty is to love them. Our duty is to tell them about Christ, to bring them back into the fellowship if they will listen. It's not to shun them and treat them like uh, they don't exist. It's to evangelize them and to love them back into fellowship. Truly I say to you, and this is to the church, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he's talking to the leadership of the church that God is behind them in this effort. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And this is a uh, out-of-context quote a lot of times, but here's the context of the last statement. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now it's true, out of context too, but that statement belongs with all the rest of those verses. I'm here in your presence, the Lord says. And if you agree, I agree with you. You're my spokespersons. We have to remember that the ultimate goals of biblical confrontation and, and mediation and settlement of disputes, there's several goals that we're always to keep in mind. What's the very first one? God's glory. God's glory. Taking your disputes out into the public forum to be ridiculed by the, by the community doesn't bring God glory. It doesn't restore the fellowship. It, it creates rifts in the fellowship. So the ultimate goal is God's glory. The next goal is reconciliation. We want these two to get back together. We don't want them to be sitting on opposite sides. How many of you are sitting on opposite sides of uh, somebody in dispute? I hope none. But that's kind of where it goes. And then we have a kind of a division of the congregation. Congregations have split up formally over things like this. The third thing is restoration of fellowship. I want to be able to say, God bless you, to someone that I've had a dispute with. I want to literally be able to pray for their good. I don't want to hate them. I don't want to be bitter about something. And fourth, to promote abiding love within the body of Christ. There are always going to be situations in any Christian church. We're not perfect. We're not perfect people. But there are ways that biblical uh, reconciliation can be done if you pursue it. If you hold on to the bitterness, Paul is saying, why not rather be defrauded? 
Instead, you defraud with your attitude. All right, so A, B, C, did anybody have a C moment where I spoke to them? That's... I did. Romans 8.28 is the promise that this will ultimately glorify God and it will ultimately be for our good. We know that for those who love God and all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 12 tells us many important things. I'll cherry pick a few verses out of Romans 12 and they're out of context. 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affections. Outdo one another in showing honor. 14, 12.14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. And verses 19 through 21, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, this is your enemy, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. And that's another message as what that means. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now if God calls, calls us to treat our enemies that way, hadn't we ought to treat each other way, way better? This is the attitude that glorifies God. It acknowledges His sovereignty in all matters, and it causes us to willingly turn it over to Him for the ultimate results that He'll bring about. It's a wonderful thing to turn ourselves over to an almighty God and see what He does. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be willing to humble ourselves in attitude and in conduct when we are more likely willing, appear to be willing to take an offense. If we can do so without bitterness, help us to just put it aside. If we can't put it aside, help us to settle it in a way that honors you. Whether it's a legal dispute or simply a disagreement among believers, would you be the center and the focus of all our attitudes, all our actions, that you might be honored and glorified even in that process. In Jesus' name, amen.